Today's passage is Acts 16, verses 6 through 34. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man, of, a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Molly. That is a lot of text that you just stood for. Um, my name is John Demeter. I'm one of the elders here at Redemption Peoria. Thankful to be with you. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump straight into the text, because that's, that's a lot to cover in not a lot of time that we have this morning. 
So if you would pray with me. Um, Father, thanks for your goodness, your grace to us. Thanks for what you're doing, what you did do in this chapter in Acts chapter 16. Thanks, God, what you are doing as you continue to take your message to the ends of the earth, to give people an opportunity to know who you are, to know where life is found in you. Help us, Father, give us fresh eyes and hearts and minds as we engage with the text this morning, that we would be changed, that you would make us different. I pray you would make me different. So we need you, we trust you, we love you, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're new or um, have been out of town for the last couple of weeks, we've been traveling through the book of Acts as a church since January of 2017. So there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we are at chapter 16, just a little over halfway. And if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it reads as a narrative, a historical narrative. There are different types of genres in literature in the Bible, and so it's very important to understand what kind of genre you are reading and studying. So this is a narrative. And anytime you see a narrative in the scripture, you want to start to look for the key phrase or key verse about what all the other stories are about in that book. We find it really quick in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we'll see it here on the screen in a minute. And this is a response. Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's done miracles. He's proclaimed the kingdom of God. He gets betrayed, arrested, crucified. Three days later, he beats death. He shows up to his followers. He spends 40 days with them, instructing them and teaching them. And then one of the last interactions he has with his disciples, he has this conversation in verse 6 of chapter 1. They say, is this it? Like, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Like, now that you're back? They're seeking comfort. They want things to be all the way right, that the Roman government would be overthrown and that the nation of Israel would reign and that everything would be right again in the world. Jesus responds in verse 7 to say, listen, it's my father's time. It's not your time or my time. And actually, this is what he says in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the hook that every single story in the book of Acts hangs on. This verse right here. What God is calling his church to be, to be empowered to be his witnesses, to go out and share the truth and love of who Jesus is. And we need to be reminded of this verse today because we're going to have a massive shift in audience of the gospel today in Acts chapter 16 with what we see in the text. So here's how I want to break it down. We're going to look at the four scenes that we just heard Molly read in the text in in chapter 16. I'm going to summarize them really quickly, give some cultural context for what words are being used and things like that. And then we're going to look at the implications, not only for the disciples at the time, but for us today in 2017. What does this actually mean for me as I attempt to follow Jesus. So let's jump right in. If you don't already have a Bible, um, or if you don't have one open, you can uh, get one in the back there. Or if you already have it open, let's look at Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. This is the first scene, the Macedonian call. Verse 6, chapter 16. And they went through the region of Phagiria and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go 
to Benithia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul continues to go out and seek people to tell about who Jesus is, that this resurrected Jesus actually changes everything. And they're like, okay, we're going to go to this city. And they get stopped. It says, from the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, well, we'll go over here. And it says they get stopped from speaking and going. And so Paul must be confused at this point. He wants to get the message out. We're supposed to go to the ends of the earth, but we keep getting stopped. What should we do? Where should we go? Then in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul has this vision. He's frustrated. Which way should I go? I'm not sure what to do. I keep getting these roadblocks clearly from God's spirit, which I love. He is the one orchestrating his kingdom, orchestrating his people being witnesses to him. They keep getting locked. Finally, he has this vision to say, here's here's where you're going to go. You're going to go to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is in Europe. This is the first time the gospel touches this soil of this continent in Acts chapter 16. It has massive implications for us, as we're going to see in a minute. So they get up and they go immediately. The second, that's the end of scene one. The second scene, the conversion of Lydia, starting in verse 11. They jump on a boat. They head over to Philippi, which is the leading city of Macedonia, a Roman colony. I'm in um, verse 11 right now, sorry, the end of that. When we, were, we remained in this city some days, verse 13, sorry, it was 12, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So anytime the disciples would go to a new city, the first thing they would do is find out where the temple was. They would find out where the temple was. They would go to God's people and say, listen, you've been worshiping this Yahweh, this God. You've been talking about a Messiah to come and fix and put everything back together again. You know what? He already came. His name is Jesus. He died, beat death, rose from the grave. You put your trust and faith in him. This is what everything is pointing to in the Jewish faith. And so they would go directly to the synagogues. But they got to Philippi. There's no synagogue. It's a pre-Christian society, pre-Christian culture. So they find the closest thing to them, which is these women that are by the river, and they seem to be saying Jewish prayers. And so they engage in conversation with those women. And one of the women they meet is Lydia, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Lydia, this, this phrase, she was a seller of purple goods. Lydia drove a Tesla. Like, she probably had her own jet plane. Like, because purple goods were very, very hard to come, by, to come by in this time. And so she was at the top of the economic status. She was an entrepreneur. That's what the text is getting us to. And it's really interesting when you start to see there's three levels of people that we're dealing with. We have high society, entrepreneur, seems to be warm to the things of God. She's praying, but she doesn't really know Jesus until Paul comes onto the scene. And I love the back end of verse 14. The Lord opened her hearts to pay attention to what Paul said. We just read that prayer in the first song. Open my heart, Lord. That's the end of scene two. 
Well, actually, no, that's not the end of scene two. The end of scene two is she gets baptized. She goes back. Her whole family, all of her servants, they encounter who Jesus is and they come to know him as well. And then she urges the apostles, listen, stay with us. I know you're traveling on your journey, but please just stay with us a little bit. Keep teaching us. And so the apostles say, we'll stay. End of scene two. Scene three, Paul and Silas in prison, starting in verse 16. Stay with me. It says, we were going to the place of prayer, and there we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain for fortune telling. So they're staying with Lydia. They're continuing to go back to this place of prayer, engaging with people with the gospel. And this demon-possessed slave girl comes up to them. Right? So we had the highest of society in Lydia, rich entrepreneur. Now we have the lowest of society, a slave that she doesn't even own herself. And her owners profit on her because she tells fortunes. Anytime you see in the Gospels demonic activity in front of Jesus, the demons recognize the authority of Jesus and they say something. And the same is true here as this woman recognizes the authority of the Holy Spirit and the apostles. Listen to what she says in verse 19. Or sorry, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Verse 18. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. When I was in college at the University of Arizona, there was a man that went by the name of Brother Jed. Does anybody know who Brother Jed is? Any hands? Anybody seen Brother Jed? Oh, that's a couple of you. Okay. So, Brother Jed kind of had a circuit. He would go to different colleges, and he would do what he called confrontational evangelism. Here's what this meant. He would come on campus, and he would find the most densely populated area in the middle of campus, all the foot track of going back and forth in between class. And he would set up shop at the most visible place, and literally he would get on a box, and he would just start berating people as they walked by class, talking about what the women are wearing, and how you're going to hell, and you're an abomination, just going in on people. It was not good. So when I was a student, and I would begin to engage in spiritual conversation with some of my classmates... And we'd start talking, and we'd get to the opportunity to talk about Jesus. And I would say the name of Jesus, and they would go, oh, you mean, you're like, this is like the Brother Jed religion? No. It's not like what he's saying, but he's saying the same thing. So now I'm getting painted with the same brush. And this is exactly what is happening in this scene. Paul is starting a ministry in Philippi. There's not any other Jesus followers there. It's coming from the ground up, and they have this resistance from a demonic presence, even though she's speaking truth. And Paul's saying, listen, I don't want you to lump what we're trying to do in with her. It's different. Becomes greatly annoyed, and he confronts. Well, the owners of the slave girl, she actually gets delivered from the demonic presence, but the owners are like super hot now. Because that's how they made their money. And now she can't tell fortunes, and so they're going, man, I don't like these Paul and Silas guys. 
So they decide, they seize them, they take them into the marketplace, and they basically say, listen, these guys are breaking the rules. They're ter- we need to do something. A mob ensues, and they get stripped, they get beaten, and eventually they get thrown into prison. So the, the, the jailer, the one in charge in Philippi, I mean, he must have been like reading on Facebook. He's like, these dudes bust out of prison. Like, I've seen it. Because like, if we look in the beginning of Acts, these guys go into prison, God rescues them, they escape, and so he's going, man, this is not going to happen with me. Look at verse 24 of the text. It says, having received this order, he's talking about the jailer, he put them in inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. He's saying, these Christian dudes that follow this Jesus, man, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm about these guys. And listen, I'm going to make sure they don't get out when I'm watching them. End of scene three. Scene four, starting in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately the doors were opened, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Verse 27. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. My wife and I went on a date to see Wonder Woman last week. Yeah, Wonder My wife's tall. She's like one of the Amazon women, you know, like, so I was like, I thought she could be a stunt woman in the, in the movie. Anyway, um, Wonder Woman's like beating these dudes up, right, left and right. And there's this one scene where she just jacks like five guys in a row, and then she grabs one of them, she's like, kind of like, tell me who sent you, kind of deal. And as she's doing it, like, this guy takes a pill and bites on it, and it's cyanide, and he dies before he can, you know, tell him anything that she wants to know. This is the same thing happening in this passage, right? The jailer knows. The jailer knows that if my boss comes in the next day and these guys are gone from prison... It's going to be worse for me than if I just don't execute myself right now. So he's feeling like, man, I I need to kill myself because these guys must be gone. He assumes it. Look what happens in verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for all all here. Verse 29, and the jailer cried or called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out saying, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe In the Lord Jesus, you will be saved in your entire household. He cleans them up. He takes them out. He confesses to Jesus. He gets baptized. He goes back. And all of his household rejoices because they come to know Jesus. End of scene four. Why does Luke, the author of the book of Acts, give us these specific scenes at this specific time in the story? Think about it with me for a second. Again, throw it through the lens of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is the first ends of the earth in the book of Acts. And think about how God is so beautifully orchestrated and woven in the different characters in the story. You have Lydia, high society, kind of warm to God, but she doesn't know who Jesus is. Then you have the lowest of society with the slave girl. She gets delivered, but we don't have any indication that she ever comes to Jesus. Then you have this jailer who's kind of blue-collar, middle-class, trying to control things. And we get to see his conversion. 
And you might think when we're reading the book of Acts and we've been traveling through this in a scenario like this, these kind of four scenarios, you're thinking, man, this is great for the early church. Like, I'm all about, yeah, good, go God at the very beginning, right? But you're thinking, I'm probably not going to have a vision to go somewhere this week. Uh, I'm probably not going to run into a demon that I'm going to cast out. Uh, and then I'm probably not going to get jumped because I cast that demon out, thrown into prison. And then when I'm in prison, there probably won't be an earthquake that frees me and I save somebody's life. So you're like, what, how else should I respond to this text other than saying, good job at the beginning, God. Like, but when we start to unearth what is being said here, I think it has massive implications for us to be witnesses to the kingdom. Because again, think about the culture. Think about the audience the apostles are now going to. This is a pre-Christian society. And when you think about our culture, the one we live in in America, I would argue that we're already, or not already, but almost, we're a post-Christian society. When you think about the people in our world, in our culture, think about your coworker, think about your family member, think about your neighbor that don't know Jesus. Maybe they didn't grow up in church, they're not familiar. And you say, what do they really want in life? Man, they want to be heard. They want their life to have meaning. They want to matter. The younger generation wants issues of justice and freedom. And there's a plague of an anxious spirit in our culture of people trying to run to things to get those things always falling short. Now, if you have that coworker, that neighbor, that family member, and you engage them with those conversations like about meaning in life, and you say, well, what about Christianity? And they haven't grown up in church. They don't know anything about the Bible. They only know cultural Christianity. They're going to think you're joking, right? Like Christ- Christianity, like that's... That's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? Isn't that a super old religion? It's irrelevant at best. It's kind of hostile at worst because it actually kind of blocks my freedom from what I know about Christianity. The same type of thing is happening here in the sense of Paul and the disciples are going to a new place exposing new people to Christianity. We really get to see it next week in Acts 17 how Paul engages with people verbally. So what does this look like for us? How do we take what we learned here and engage with our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members to be witnesses to the kingdom of God? I've got seven implications. Seven implications of what it looks like to witness to the kingdom of God in a non-Christian society. What do we see the disciples doing here that we should model now? Here's the first thing. Spirit-directed. We saw that in verse 6 through 10. That they are trying to go one way, but the Spirit of God is directing them. Are you trying to have conversations? Are you trying to be a light in a dark place? You need to be guided by God's Spirit who lives in you if you believe in Jesus. Are you even sensitive to that? When you engage in conversation, when you do things in demonstration, do you have the conversation with Jesus saying like, Spirit, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Should I go here? Should I not go there? Should I say this? Should I not say this? We need to be Spirit-directed to be witnesses to the kingdom. And we see the apostles doing that well. It also gives freedom. Like, it seemed like they were going one way and they were bent to go one way and God's spirit was like, no, you're, you're actually, you're actually going to go this way. 
So it doesn't get me all caught in my head if I'm making right or wrong decisions. I can trust God's spirit to navigate and move where I need to be. We need to be spirit directed. The second thing that we recognize that's an implication is a realization of regeneration. A realization of regeneration. This regeneration is kind of a churchy theological term. It just means um, at the beginning of all time, God created man and woman. They were good And God gave them a choice, and they chose to disobey God in Genesis chapter 3, what the Bible teaches, what we believe. And because of that, now there is sin and separation. And the only thing to bridge that gap is God regenerating people's hearts back to him. And so in this text, we read it, verse 14, talking about Lydia. Love this, the way it's phrased again. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was said, she did not open her own heart. The Lord opened her heart to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Do we realize that when we're trying to engage our coworkers, our neighbors, that God's the one that's going to do it? Again, there's so much freedom in that. Now I don't have to like worry about, man, did I, did I say this right? Or do I, man, I just totally screwed it up. Like, well, I can't believe I said that. No, God is the one that does it. It gives you freedom to have conversations about Jesus. You don't have to worry about the pressure of every single little word you say. God's the one that opens hearts. First one, spirit directed. Second one, realization of regeneration. The third one, expect resistance. Implications of walking and being a witness to the kingdom. You need to expect resistance. I don't know why you're in here, what your church background is. Some of you I do, some of you I don't. If you were sold this version of Christianity that was, it's all rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns and everything's going to be great, and that's just not true. It's going to be that one day, but right now we are not in the garden. We are going to have massive resistance. To the kingdom of God and expectations. It's so funny how disappointed you get when you don't have your expectations met, right? If you walk into a scenario and you're thinking one thing and it doesn't meet, you go, man, this is, this is terrible. Like what? Right? Expectations, managing those expectations. You need to expect resistance. And we see it in the text. Verse 16 and 19, through 19. Paul and Silas, they have resistance first from the slave girl. They take care of that. Then they have resistance from the slave girl's masters. And this is interesting to me. Those of you that are in your jobs and you're trying to walk with Jesus and you're trying to do things the right way and your boss is not a Christian, he says, listen, don't, don't, don't do the spreadsheet like that. Just, just yeah, increase the numbers. You, like, he's asking you to cut corners or she's asking you to cheat on something. And you say, you know what? Actually, I don't feel comfortable doing that. You're going to have a problem at your job because your boss will not like that answer. But if you have the expectation of, I'm going to get resistance for this decision, it helps you do what you need to do. Expect resistance. The next thing that they did well, they embraced resistance. They didn't just expect it, but they actually embraced it from the text. In verse 25, you see, it says about 
midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I had a guy that um, discipled me in college, and he said this phrase just one time, just like off the cuff. And it's something that stuck with me, and I kept it, and I continue to use it and say it all the time. He said, don't curse it, embrace it. Don't curse it, embrace it. He's talking specifically about your circumstances. Listen, if God is sovereign and you can trust him and he's good and he loves you, don't curse your circumstances, actually embrace it. And we see the disciples doing this here in verse 25. As they're praying, they're singing hymns to God. I guarantee you they did not feel like doing that after being beaten, wrongly accused, their mission is now on halt again. What are we going to do? We're going to pray and we're going to sing because we know that's what's true. How is your heart when you come into disappointment, whether it's financial, it's family? Like, are you so focused on your circumstances? You need to pray and sing. That's why we do this at this church. That's why we sing here because we're singing the truth. Apart from our feelings, and we're trusting that God is going to catch our feelings up. They embraced resistance well. So they were spirit-directed. They had a realization of regeneration. They expected resistance. They embraced resistance. Number five, they had empathetic awareness. They had empathetic awareness. Verse 27 and 28 says, When the jailer woke, he saw that he was in prison. The doors opened, drew his sword. He's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners escaped. 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now, think if you're in Paul's shoes. You're tired. You're frustrated. You just got beat. And now this jailer's like, Oh, you're really not going to get out of here. God miraculously opens the cell, breaks your shackle, this dude runs in, and he goes to kill himself. You know what I would have done if I was Paul? I would just be like, okay. Because that, that's not my problem. This dude wants to accident. Like, okay, that actually helps us because if he kills himself, we can just walk out. But Paul has an awareness because his gaze is not focused on his circumstances. His gaze is focused on Jesus and the goodness of God. And because of that, he has empathy to this guy who's going to kill himself. Do you have an awareness of the people around you that don't know Jesus? Coworkers, neighbors, family members? Do you have empathy to them? Or are you so focused in your own circumstances you can't even see anybody else? Men and women, the people that don't know Jesus... Their life is hopeless at the end of the day. They can go home and it might not seem like that, but they lay their head on that pillow and it's ultimately empty. And we have the answer of Jesus. Right? We sang Christ, the sure and steady anchor. We get to hold on to this anchor that is Jesus. They're not holding on to anything. Do we have enough awareness to be empathetic to that, that they're blind and we need to point them to the one that would make them see? They're directed by the Spirit. They have a realization of regeneration. They expect resistance, embrace resistance. They have an empathetic awareness in the text. And then six, there's a sacrificial engagement. 
Verse 28, we just read it again. Paul cries out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Again, Paul doesn't have to say anything, but he actually sacrifices his life for the jailer's life. Because what is he really saying? Listen, don't kill yourself, we're not leaving. And they were probably going to die, the apostles. And so instead of taking matters in their own and walking out, he actually sacrifices for the person that doesn't know Jesus. Do you sacrifice for those people around you that don't know Jesus? Sacrifice your time, your money? Do you do that? Like that is an implication of what it means to be a witness to the kingdom. Spirit-directed, realization of regeneration, expect resistance, embrace resistance, empathetic awareness, sacrificial engagement, the last one. They had a vision for generational impact. And a vision for generational impact. I love this in the text. Again, this is the first time we see the gospel go to Europe. And look at what it says after the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the jailer. Verse 15, after Lydia, it says, And she was baptized, and her whole household as well. And then similarly, in verse 33 of chapter 16, talking about the jailer, he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. My wife and I serve with a ministry called Athletes in Action, and um, the majority of our work is in discipleship. We'd sit with athletes and talk to them about Jesus. When I would sit down with an athlete, and God was starting to reveal the truth and the beauty of the gospel to, to this athlete, and he was about to say yes to Jesus, and I want to follow Christ. You know what I would think about in that moment? I'm not thinking about that athlete. I'm thinking about his grandchildren. Not just thinking about his conversion. I'm thinking, if he really walks with Jesus, maybe God will give him a wife one day that loves Jesus, and then they will raise their kids to love Jesus, and those kids will love Jesus. This is generational impact. It's not just one person. And if you think the person you're trying to talk to, to have a witness to, and you're only thinking about their conversion, you're thinking short-sighted. So much bigger. The opportunities God has allowed us to be in to see that actually happen where God actually changes somebody's trajectory. Their family tree and line is now totally different because they say yes to Jesus. These are the seven things as I look at the text and I think about, man, if we're called to be witnesses to non-believing culture, man, if... If my life looks like this, it should be a sweet aroma to other people. And the reason I keep using the word implication instead of application is because this is, I'm not asking us to go do this. This is not a, hey, here's the list, figure out what you need to do better and pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and go do it. No, these are implications of a relationship. With Jesus. There's a big difference. And just like the apostles, they were people just like us. They're men just like us, women like us, like the people that followed Jesus in the very beginning. It's because they walked with Jesus. They committed themselves to their community. We see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And they were empowered by God's Spirit. The same thing can be true for us. 
As we get in this book and we read the accounts of Jesus, we can be with Jesus. We can commit to our community. We can be empowered by God's spirit to change the world. And the disciples, again, are like you and I. And we get a snapshot in this chapter of what it looks like to be a witness to the kingdom. But they didn't do these things perfectly. Right? This was only because of their relationship with Jesus, how God was changing them to look like him. Because look at this list. Who does this list perfectly? It's one person. Right? Think about this list in the grid of Jesus. Directed by the Spirit at the end of John chapter 12, Jesus talks about being directed in his mission. In verse 49, he says, I've not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has given himself me a command to to say and what to speak. Jesus understood. He was under authority. He was directed by that authority. Jesus understands the realization of regeneration. I love this scene in John chapter 3. They're having this conversation, Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. They're talking specifically about regeneration. What does it mean to be born again? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born in the Spirit. Jesus understood it takes the Spirit to regenerate people. Expect resistance. In John 16.33, Jesus says this, In the world you will have tribulation. Expect it, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus expects to be betrayed by his closest follower, Judas. He expects the religious leaders not to listen to him. He expects resistance. He embraces resistance more beautifully than anybody in human history. He's about to go to the cross. He knows the pain that he's going to endure. And he says, not by my will, but by yours. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, talking about Jesus says, who for the joy set before him to endure the cross, he embraces his mission. Jesus has empathetic awareness as he stands over the crowds and he sees people and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. As his hands are getting nailed into a cross, he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Ultimate empathetic awareness. And then obviously he engages in sacrificial engagement. I love the way Philippians 2 says it in verses 6. 7 and 8, it says, he did, not equal, uh, uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus has a vision for generational impact. The reason he came, left heaven, came here to do all that stuff we just talked about so that generations of people would follow him. As we seek to be a witness to the kingdom, to a non-believing culture society, may we look like the disciples because the disciples look like Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, thanks for the truth and the goodness of your word, your spirit. God, thanks that you don't leave us to try and get back to you on our own. You give us your word, your spirit, your community of people. Thanks for Paul and Silas being attentive to your spirit to go to Europe, to have conversations with Lydia, with the Philippian jailer, God, that we are impacted from those conversations even as we sit here, as we trace the line back to your mission to go to the ends of the earth. Help us, Jesus, be reflections of who you are as we engage with you moment by moment. Would you change us to look more like you so that more people will come to know you and live for you? We love you and we trust you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.